0: So, this morning we're continuing on with the Kingdom of God series. Uh, We're going to stay on this hopefully uh, until you're sick of it in a year or two. And uh, as you know, if you look on the back where the titles are, uh, what was going to be chapter 3 is now chapter 5. I felt like before we did a survey of kingdom history and the Hebrew scriptures that we needed to at least uh, begin to understand some major biblical concepts that aren't that well-known these days, and therefore they blind us from getting the real message of the Bible. Last week, we started with the first of those major biblical themes, and I called it eternal decree. Uh, Some people would call it predestination, but God foreordained, foreknew, and had an eternal plan, and nothing could or will ever cause that plan to be altered. He declares the end from the beginning, and uh, today we're going to uh, look at the concept of covenant, and then I'm going to introduce, uh, based on the concept of covenant, a, a concept called covenant theology, and covenant theology is a paradigm or a, or a hermeneutic, a way of interpreting Scripture. Uh, I'm just going to touch on that at the end today, and then we'll look at that more in more detail next week. So, Our series theme verse, Matthew 6, Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth it is in heaven. We've been drawing three points out of that. First of all, the kingdom of heaven is not heaven, nor going to heaven, nor the plan of salvation, or any of the things that most people think it is today. Uh, Secondly, it's not the popular notions about the kingdom of God that uh, are popular in terms of of eschatology or thinking of the last things today or that were popular uh, during the life of Christ in what is called his first coming or his first advent. Um, In Jesus' day, most people had an idea that uh, darkness and the world system, which was uh, the powers of Satan and so forth, which were worked out primarily through evil empire such as Egypt and Babylon and Medo-Persia and in in the day times of Christ through the Romans and the and the Caesars who wanted worship and in the state demands worship and so Caesar was called the king of kings and he was called the lord of lords and he was called the son of god those were the common names for Caesar on the street that's why the bible is so big on calling Jesus the king of kings the lord of lords and the son of god so that you so the, because the Bible makes clear that Caesar isn't. And that's, in fact, what the Christians got in trouble for when they ran into the Roman Empire as they began to expand because they weren't willing to say, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he didn't ascend, we didn't see him, uh, There's no, he's not really the king, uh, we'll go ahead and sacrifice to Caesar and allow Jesus to be a king. The Romans were very happy to let everyone have their various religions as long as your God was a God less than Caesar the God. And the Christians couldn't go there. So, but the popular notions were that the way that was going to come to an end was God was going to come in some big cataclysmic final event and militarily throw the Romans out And set up the kingdom, like in the days of David, in a geopolitical way. And this was so deeply ingrained in the thinking of Israel as it is today. Most people think the kingdom is going to be established when Jesus comes back the second time. They don't think it has been established, and it already is. They think it's going to be established when he comes back a second time. Until that time, darkness is stronger the devil and his demons are stronger. The world and the world's systems are stronger. And uh, the Lord is not able to convert the hearts of men. And therefore, he's going to come and impose his kingdom in, a, in an external, uh, military way where he's going to land on the Mount of Olivet and, uh, you know, conquer Israel and throw the Arabs out and reestablish uh a political Israeli kingdom and, and as if uh, people are going to be in, the, in that kingdom are going to be saved by doing works. It's just the, the ideas today are so messed up. it's They're just off the charts. And they're exactly the same ideas that prevailed in Jesus' day. And they prevailed so much among the people who went to church every week, went to synagogue every week, had the scriptures, so forth, that after three and a half years of discipleship, after the resurrection, after thorough teaching of what was going to happen when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, 10 days before Pentecost, don't want to steal John's message today if he's going to talk about this, but uh, I forgot we're on that. You're probably going to talk about these verses, but uh, that's okay. We can hear some things more than once, and I'm sure you'll have a better perspective than me. But uh, these guys go to Jesus. They say, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus is just so much more gracious than me because I would have not been able to sleep that night. I wouldn't have ascended into heaven. I would have crashed on the ground and just started to cry. And I would have said, are you kidding me? This is what you think I came for after all this time? I would have just, I would have probably uh, been glad that I was bald so I couldn't rip my hair out. But uh, because they still, they betray, they still don't get a thing. They, they, they think that, that Jesus is going to restore a geopolitical kingdom and conquer the Romans. The idea that he conquered sin, and that he conquered Satan, that he conquered death, and that his kingdom is already present, and it's going to begin to work from the inside out, from the bottom up, from individuals to, to form a new kingdom community, the family of God on the earth, and that family of God is going to fill the earth with God's glory, which is the message of the whole Bible, They didn't get any of it. But from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that's what the Bible is is about. As truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the sea, not after he comes back a second time. That's what he came to establish the first time. And he has established the kingdom is in our midst. So Matthew 6.10 also tells us the kingdom of God should be our goal and our priorities. Now, as we talked about uh, last week, uh, part of the way you can tell how much the kingdom has come into a person is simply this. Someone who doesn't see the kingdom very much sees other people's sins very well. Someone who sees the kingdom sees their own sin very deeply. And is broken over it. Uh, you look at political causes, uh, both on left wing and right wing political causes. They're always about seeing the sin in everyone else, as if we got we're pretty good. We're pretty good people. And some of the most horrendous sinners I've ever met have really been deeply convinced they're pretty good people. <laughs> it's amazing. The whole reason God gave the law was because sin is so utterly deceitful that you, we can't see it in ourselves unless the law of God illumines it to us. Unless the Son of God illumines it to us, who was the fulfillment of the law and who said, the, world, the reason the world hates me is I testify to the world that its deeds are evil. And the essence of man's fallen nature is I will be as God. I'm going to be a control freak. I'm going to have my will, my will be done. That's the creed of most Christian people. Uh, So God's eternal decree simply says this. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, God says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have been, not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my goal and my good pleasure. I had some very insightful questions uh, last week about the will of God for people and so forth. Romans 8, 28 says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Now, when, you, when God converts you, when you start to take up your cross, when you, when you can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered himself up for me. At that point, uh, and, and even as God is drawing you to that point, God starts to work in the sovereign circumstances of your life to do you good. But he doesn't do you good the way you want it done. He does you good first by allowing the fruit of my will be done to become really bad fruit. That's how he opens your eyes up. Everybody who becomes a Christian experiences that on one level or another. And anyone who becomes a mature, discipled Christian experiences that on a root level. They understand that they're poor in spirit, that there's nothing righteous, as Paul says in Romans 7, nothing good that dwells within me, that all goodness is in God alone, and as I receive him, take up my daily crosses, embrace my, not my will, but thy will be done, be empowered by his resurrected life and the power of his spirit. As I live out of that, uh, some God can do some good. So... Um, I wish I could read, uh, make a note for yourself if you have the outline there, Romans eight twenty eight through 39 I have written next to it, audacious covenant grace decreed. And if you'll read the whole chapter there from verse 28 to the end, you'll see that it's the basis of the song that John likes to sing a lot called, you know, where it goes, your love never fails and never runs out and, and so forth. That song is taken from those verses, where can I go from the love of Christ? Neither height nor depth nor angels, and so forth. Um, Numbers twenty-two, three, nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not f- fulfill it? So that takes us to uh, a biblical view of history. Whether you know it or not, you have a view of history in your heart. In your heart, you have expectations. Of the way the world's gonna go, society's gonna go, and your life is gonna go. In John 3 3, 1 John 3 3, I'm sorry, the apostle says, uh, we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. Now that's not just about going to heaven, but the more we perceive him, the more we have our eyes open to perceive Christ, the more we'll be like him. And anyone who has this hope, that is, that view of history purifies himself as he is pure. If you see someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who chases hard after God, it's because God has changed their view of history deep inside. In every history class you take, your professor has a religion. He has a worldview. And when you take a You know, I I realized after I got my master's degree with uh, uh, six areas of emphasis, including early American history, I began to study the original documents of early American history, and I realized that I didn't know anything about American history. I got a sanitized humanistic version that they want to teach you in public schools. And I only began to actually understand America's history when I started studying the original documents myself. And realized, uh, like that movie Eight Men Out, "Say it ain't so, Joe." Realized it was quite different than uh, what I had been brainwashed to believe, because every history is what's called polemical. That is, they're they're trying to sell you a religion with it. All religions have a view of history, and every world view is a religion. Secular humanism is a religion. It's a belief in man's reason. And man's science, in the ultimate goodness of man, as embodied in science and, and in the state uh, and in the welfare state and so forth. Uh, everyone has a view of history. So I want to give you four the four most common. The first one is the cyclical view of history. Many hold to this today. Almost all ancient polytheistic religions held to this. And some humanistic people hold to this but in the cyclical view, there's no point. You'll hear people say funny things like, uh, I'll say, how you doing? They'll say, I can't complain. And they'll say, and it wouldn't do me any good anyway because no one would listen. Well, that may be true on a microcosmic level. But uh, on the big level, it's not all pointless. And they actually say one of the signs you can see in any civilization, when it's in its advanced stages of decline, as the cyclical view of history gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and more and more people think there's no point. And generally, people who see no point, in Proverbs it says that without a vision, the people perish, and happy is he who keeps the law. If you see God doing something, you will not fall into sin that, you know, is a way of life. You, you won't uh, take that extra look and you won't, whatever. This crazy stuff that people do these days, it's just off the charts crazy sometimes. Because there's no view of history. And in a cyclical view, you're just condemned to repeat it over and over. In a cyclical view of, historian, of history, the, the persons would say, the only thing we can learn from history is that no one ever learns anything from history. <laughs> and that was the basis of ba- Baal worship and Astridite wor- Asht- worship, and uh, the, it was the idea that you got to go out and copulate with everyone all the time, and, you know, like, like the Internet today or whatever. you, know, you got to go out and have sex everywhere all the time and stuff to regenerate life. And uh, they actually believed that the fields wouldn't be fruitful unless they did their sexual immorality cult to to Baal and to Ashtaroth and and to uh, uh, I'm forgetting my gods of ancient times. But uh, I haven't I haven't had any devotion times with them lately. (laughs) Thank you. So you you get it. Life like it is a cycle. The chaos view of history. Uh, is also called historical linear pessimism. That is, everything's getting worse. There's a dear, sweet Christian lady in uh, Peter Mantos Church down in Cincinnati, whose parents were college professors at Bowling Green, and I remember taking her father for a political science class. There was supposed to be something about the presidency or the Congress and how it works, but because he was basically a Marxist and had his own agenda. He didn't, we didn't study that. <laughs> we, we, he made us read this book called The End of Affluence. And it was about how a new ice age was coming. Tell that to the global warming people. That was just in the 70s, you know. And if you, were, if you didn't believe there was a new ice age coming, you were stupid. Really stupid. And, uh, and we're running out of gas. And the earth is going to be so polluted, there's not going to be any food, and we might as well not have Sam and James Davis be born, because by the time they're born, there won't be anything for them to eat, and it's, things are bad. (laughs) That movie, Network, if you have never seen the movie, Network, you owe it to yourself to see it. Great. When Howard Beals goes, I don't have to tell you things are bad. We all know things are bad. (laughs) And... uh, uh, most people aren't consistent, historical, linear, pessimistic, but a lot of that exists in our culture. Uh, historical linear optimism was the, is the religion of the Enlightenment. It was the religion of many of our founding fathers, especially guys like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And it was this idea that man through his science, man through uh, representative government uh, is going to solve all injustices, eliminate poverty, eliminate death and suffering, and, and things are going to be very grand. It's the religion of Star Trek. And, uh, you, know, you know, Star Trek, you know, postulates a world where these guys are are from several uh, planets and galaxies, and they're they're doing good things in the galaxy because planet Earth has come through the United Nations, and one world government has come to eliminate all suffering and poverty, and there aren't any more problems to solve here. So we've taken our great technology to go make war in the universe, and uh, <laughs> that's kind of the the basis of the of the what do you call that kind of uh, literature? Just uh, Science fiction, uh, you know, it's kind of a utopian view of of the world. Uh, And historical linear optimism tends to have a view that there is no God. All things are material. And probably the best statement ever is in Genesis 3 when the serpent says, you shall be as God yourself, determining for yourself good from evil. And then the second best statement was by a philosopher that is a little older than Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and so forth, a guy named Protagoras of Abdera, who said, Man is the measure of all things. Reality is what man wants it to be. We live in a culture that that is the God of our culture. Your Your definition of reality, your perspective, that's reality. And even most Christians The reason they wouldn't want the kind of church where there's any relationships or accountability and so forth is because deep in our hearts, we want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. And we have a plan for our life, and we do not want God getting in the way of how we are going to serve Him. (laughs) Really. We don't want God to get in between us and and the vision we have for, for our ministry or whatever. So uh, most historical linear optimisms put uh, their hope in man's reason, man's science, and government. And one of the things that is ironic, because the cyclical view is that the only thing we learn from history is we don't learn enough from history, is that you would never learn today in a political science class or a history class that every ancient civilization had a statist view of salvation. The emperor was the God or the Son of God. The Romans didn't invent this, the Mesopotamians had it, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Medes, the Persians, the Egyptians, and so forth. In fact, a major theme of the Bible as we get through, get into. This, we're going to see that there's the people who oppose God who usually embody their power in the totalitarian state. And then there's the people who serve God who want to see people be free. And they define freedom as taking Christ's yoke upon you, going through his cross to become who you were always created to be. And there's this war of the people of faith and the people of the, the evil one all through the Bible. It wasn't because of overpopulation, as you might hear in a modern class, that Cain killed Abel. The, the earth wasn't getting too crowded and the cities weren't full of, you know, uh, too many people packed together. There was that Abel had faith in the blood of animals being shed as a foreshadowing and he was looking forward to Christ's atonement and he brought the blood of animals as his sacrifice. And Cain brought the fruit of the ground, speaking of man's efforts, man's self-righteousness, and man's way of of bringing order to the world. And when God rejected Cain's sacrifice, because it wasn't from faith, and everything that's not from faith is, is sin, out of jealousy, he slew his brother. And thus, that is the basis of all socialistic Marxist religions. My brother got more giftedness and toys than I got, Uh, You know, I got birth I got born into a society that's not fully equal like there's ever been one And therefore I've had to study a little harder and work a little harder and become a little bit more to pass down a better life to my kids And therefore i'm upset at those people who got a better deal than me and i'm going to kill them take their toys and uh And have a better life and i'm going to do it at the voting booth That's the essence of man's religion it's the essence of the Democratic and Republican parties in America. They think you, they know what's better for you than God does. God only asks for 10%. I'd just love if we could get taxation. You know, if we could get the income tax down below 10% so like we could actually think the government thinks they're not as important as God, uh, that would be amazing. <laughs> it's, you know? Uh, the biblical view. The biblical view is, is called progressive revelation and the progressive establishment of the kingdom of God here and now on the earth. John the Baptist proclaimed, there's one among you who's mightier than I, and I'm not even fit to untie uh, the thong of his sandals. He, will, he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the, the power of the kingdom, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit as a major theme. Wherever the Holy Spirit is manifestly present, that's where the kingdom is manifestly present. And uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he, he said, The way you get ready to receive this king is repent, because his kingdom is right here now. It's in your midst. Turn toward him, turn away from self rule. So the biblical view is that actually things are getting better despite the fact that the Bible makes it very clear that evil men will wax more evil. Darkness is getting darker, and a little light overpowers a lot of darkness. And God is going to—when the, the, Jesus came, it was like the dawn of the sun— and, it, and his kingdom will shine brighter and brighter until the full day. That's why the Bible can talk about, before the second coming of Christ, the nations that serve God versus the nations that don't serve God. There will be whole nations impacted by the kingdom to the degree that their predominant culture will be Christian. Now, modern people can't see that, but again, unless you're born again, you cannot perceive the kingdom of God. That is God's will, and nothing will thwart it. It'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and all the nations will come to it. Isaiah 2, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, that psalm is the most often quoted psalm in the whole Bible. It's quoted in part in, uh, around 15 times in the New Testament. And fully around seven times, by the way. Or at least fully the first few verses. And when, whenever, uh, whenever uh, Hebrews quote the first verse of a psalm, they're referring to the whole psalm. So you'll see the first verse of Psalm one ten over and over and over again. Okay, so now let's get into uh, common characteristics of biblical covenants. You kind of need to know about history to and views of history because God's view is that He is going to have a people. If you if you could, I, don't, I can't review uh, chapter two definitions of the kingdom, but we made twelve statements in chapter two about the kingdom of God defined that God's, the kingdom of God is where God's will is willingly enacted. See, his will is done everywhere. Even the evil serve his purposes. Even Satan and his demons, although it's not ever their intent, still serve his purposes. The reason you have so many of them in your life is you need to overcome them to be as part of the sanctification, become like Christ process in your life. And so uh, all things serve God's will, but God will have a people Born of one royal head, who will uh, manifest his glory in such a way as that people will be a city among the cities, a nation among the nations, a mountain among the mountains, and will show forth the glory of God into every dark corner of the earth. Now, God enters into covenants, and the covenants in, in the Bible. Especially in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament should be the Hebrew Scriptures. They are purposely using the forms of ancient literature. It's uh, something that all the higher critics point out, is because they think that then they can say, that Israel's religion revol- evolved. Nothing could be further from the truth. They use the forms of ancient literature in order to, to say exactly the opposite, to slap ancient literature in the face. So, ancient literature begins with in the beginning was chaos, water, and so forth. And in, the Bible says in the beginning was God, the ultimate creator of order and the creator of all things, ex nihilo. Likewise, with covenants in the, in the Old Testament, you know, uh, Egypt, the Mesopotamians, the Hittites, uh, eventually the Babylonians. They had what was called suzerainty covenants. You can see the, the word sovereign and reign and king is in those words. And it was the imposition of the will of a Lord upon his vassals. And it made statements about how great the Lord was and how he was protecting and serving the vassals by, you know, just like our government tells you by the reason you have this big gap between gross pay in net pay is because we are your benevolent lords and we take that to give you such wonderful life (laughs) that's we give that uh to you as as we rule you for your good and uh the ancient the ancient kings would declare just how great and benevolent their reign was the problem was is it was based on military conquest terror and, and subjugation of a people. So in the light of that, the Bible gives susanry covenants because God actually is intending to do us good in the end and is, actually is benevolent. And it's actually only as we come under the full covenant provisions of his covenant that we can find life, abundant life, etc., so in Susan's covenants, um, you can accept them or reject them. The problem is, is we've had a theology developed in the last 150 years where we, everyone thinks they can define it or alter it for themselves. Really, I couldn't sleep last night because I had so many meetings this week with, in telephone conversations and with people who basically were saying, I want God, but I really want to do it my way. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't really care what God's word says, what God's law says, what the spirit of God is counseling or the leaders God has put in my life. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it. And I've got a plan and I'm going to I'm going to keep God at a certain distance so I can work my plan. And I, you cry as a pastor because you can't have God that way. Since we're on this, turn to, turn to Isaiah 1. Don't know why I didn't leave a, uh, a marker there. I got there pretty quick anyway. Verse 18. Now, the whole chapter is God's covenant lawsuit against his own people who are supposed to do his will, be married to him, manifest his glory, and be his city and his, his vineyard and all sorts of other metaphors. And they're not doing that again. Sound familiar? And so he says in verse 10, come. I have that as the tenth action verb of the uh, chapter after Isaiah begins to lay it on him. Now, you know, number five is or number four is cease to do evil. Three is remove the evil from your midst. You know, nine is plead for the widow. Eight is defend the orphan. Ten is come now, let us reason together. Eleven. Says the Lord, though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be, be like wool. Now listen, if you are a person, I think, looking around, yeah, everyone in here is a person. If you are, you know, therefore a son of man, if you are born of sin, if you have responsibilities for yourself first, for your children, for your wife, for your friends in the church, you need to hear this next verse. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. Not if you cut corners on every uh, thing God's asking you to do, from, from tithing to serving to whatever. But if you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Now think of a sword metaphorically and physically. In some cases, in this case, he's telling Israel, you will actually be physically conquered. But a sword also represents a word. If you you refuse and rebel, you'll die by that word, by that philosophy. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken, how the faithful city has become a harlot, she was full of justice, etc. Your silver has become dross, that's called inflation. I wish I could teach on biblical views of monetary policy, but inflation is the ultimate way that rich people rip off poor people. And uh, your drink is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels. Sound familiar? I actually have a couple of politicians' names (laughs) written in there in my Bible. (laughs) That was my Bible a long time ago. (laughs) That's funny. Um, All right, so here's eight ingredients of all biblical covenants. Number one, the the Bible identifies both parties, and it declares, I'm going to create a new order. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The gospel says you can come out of the kingdom of of rebellion and doing your own thing and darkness, and you can come into the kingdom of his beloved Son who said, I delight to do your will. Right? Identification of the parties. Uh, Biblical covenants begin with God's absolute lordship and grace, he grants the covenant. Now, unlike the Susan tree covenants, it wasn't just uh, ironic lying. It wasn't just, well, we've conquered you and we, you know, we have our foot on your neck, so we're going to say we're the benevolent Lord, and you're going to accept it. But He actually is the benevolent Lord. Of course, He has conquered you and put His foot on your neck. If you understand in exact, exactly how He's offering you freedom, He's offering you freedom through dying to self through His cross. You have to go the same way, but. Unlike a, a, a suzerainty lord of, of evil kingdoms, he's not asking you to do something he didn't do the first. He died to his will, and he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it be, but uh, whatever, I'll do your will. Okay, so he grants his covenant. He's the redeemer king. He identifies the recipients of the covenant, who are members and who are not, and he declares his intention to make all things new. There's always a declaration in every covenant of be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. There's going to be something new coming out. And what's very important to understand is he does not make all new things. That's what revolutionaries want to do. He makes all things new, and that's very different. He starts with making you new. God's going to save your, what, the people that are in your sphere of influence. The first and foremost he, that way he, that he begins it is by saving you. And if you really get that and you really stop focusing on everyone else's logs and specks in their eye and you see the logs in your eyes and you cry out for salvation and you let him disciple you and, and change you to thy will be done, that will start to spill over into the people around you that you're responsible for and too. But nothing will happen till, you let, till a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. If it doesn't do that, Jesus said, it remains alone. But if, it, if you fall into the earth and die, you bear much fruit. He makes all things new. Secondly, hierarchy. God always appoints leaders as covenantal representatives. When God's leaders are faithful, his people are protected. If they're humble enough to come under the protection. When God's people are faithful to God, she obeys her leaders. If you look all through the Old Testament, there's always indictments against the people for not following their leaders, and there's indictments against the leaders for not being true shepherds, for caring about their own things and themselves and their agenda. The main problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees, we can get after a lot of things about their dispensational theology their cessationist theology the main problem was they served god for personal gain like the elder brother in the parable in luke 15 they served god for the prestige of it they served god for the because they liked to have the influence over people they didn't serve god as dying to self and being suffering servants and they didn't particularly appreciate Jesus' whole life pointing out that what, how they should be, which his whole life screamed at them about what, what, the, who they weren't and who they should be. Ethical laws. All covenants have ethical laws. The central section of the covenant defines how God's people are to live so that they can be his set apart nation different than the nations around Leviticus 19:2 you shall be holy as I am holy quoted again by 1 Peter 1:16 1, you shall be holy because I am holy god's relationship with his people is an ethical relationship we must be righteous to enjoy the blessings of the covenant there are blessings and there are curses in the covenant See that as, as, you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, foreshadowing, but Christ took the curses of the covenant upon himself. Fourthly, all covenants have oaths. God takes the oath of the covenant first. There are vows. They are publicly uh, stated before God and man. Uh, You know, one of the ones we're most common, we're most... uh, familiar with is marriage covenants. We really need to do a whole lot more about what really is happening. I'm, I'm starting to regret, frankly, having water baptized. A number of people I've water baptized until, uh, until they're really willing to make a covenant with God that they're going to do His will. Confession, the word confess is the Greek word homologeo. It means to say the same thing God says. Excuse-making, blame-shifting, rationalizing started in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, and it's been going on ever since. But Jesus said in Matthew 3, 10, 32 through 33, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. And confession and denial was a matter of, of word and lifestyle. See, when, G- when, when Peter denied Christ, that was only one kind of denying Christ. As the epistles say in James and 1 Peter, uh, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. You can tell if you know God by what you did this week. So... In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God gives these promises to Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to look next week at, well, I'm sorry, we're going to look at chap, in chapter 5, whenever we get through with 3 and 4, which is going to be quite a few weeks. We're going to look at the, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, etc. But when God made covenant with Abraham, uh, he declared it by himself. Now, let's look a little bit about what Hebrews has to say about this word oaths. In Hebrews, it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Exactly the opposite of what the, the evil lords and uh, conqueror kings who thought they were gods in the ancient empires did. Saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply for, when, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, have taken refu- we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, let's put that in some context. The, the covenant, God re, re, uh, repeats the covenant to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 18. Uh, hopefully you're familiar with the first three verses of Genesis 12. I'm going to jump right into eight, uh, Genesis 15 because I'm going after a particular point and I'm sle- lacking time here. He, he said, O oh Lord, how may I know that you'll possess it? Abraham's saying, okay, how do I know the covenants for sure? How do I know you're going to fulfill these things you're saying about inheriting the land and all this? So God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three, and a heifer I guess, and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to God and, and, and he cut them in two. God, without this shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And, and uh, the whole thing of cutting it in half is the, uh, the altar principle of uh, putting one on each side and... Uh, and so he cut them in two and he laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. Then it came about when the sun had set, think of Golgotha, it became dark, right? That it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. In other words, God walked through the pieces. Now in ancient covenants, Everything in the Bible was slapping ancient covenants in the face. Both parties had to walk through the dead animals. But in God's covenant, only he walked through. Because Abraham wouldn't even be able to keep his word anyway. Only God could fulfill the covenant. And God, what you were saying when you passed through the animals is let me be slaughtered, maimed, and destroyed, and killed if I don't fulfill my agreement in the covenant. And God was slaughtered, maimed, destroyed, and killed on a day we call Good Friday. On that day, the Lord made covenant with Abraham foreshadowing the covenant that God would make with Abraham, was making with Abraham through Christ and all those who enter into it. Genesis 22.8, now I used a couple translations called the Orthodox Jewish Bible and the Complete Jewish Bible to get this because the English Bibles uh, have a tendency not to understand Hebrew culture enough to translate it right, and I don't know any, most English Bibles get this passage wrong, but the Jewish Bibles get it right. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb burnt offering so that they went both of them together we all know the story God tells Abraham you know I I am so overwhelmed at times as a pastor with people saying I've got this you know vocation this ministry this thing I'm gonna do I want this relationship I want it this way and so forth and God is all the while saying son you can have it when you lay it on the altar because I can resurrect it and give it back to you but as long as you grasp it so tightly It'll just destroy you. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And everything that you really want, you've got to be like Abraham and lay it on the altar. Everything. Your ambition has to die, your vocation has to die. Your relationships have at least what you want to get out of them has to die. That's how you, it comes to life. That's what it means to have faith in God. God said God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. In other words, he's not saying God's going to provide a lamb. God himself will be the lamb. This is what it, the Hebrew means. Abraham was a prophet, and it he was, he was prophesying of Christ. And the same spirit, the same person, the same individual that was in Abraham when he said God will provide himself a lamb was in John the Baptist, saying, Behold the Lamb of God. He's called the Holy Spirit. All covenants have oaths. And those oaths are sanctified by the death of the one who swears. And God, knowing that we were covenant breakers and could not keep our word and our vows, himself became the lamb to atone for that and to give us the power to become covenant keepers. And without the gospel that Abraham embraced as John 8 and Romans 4 make clear, we could never keep the oaths of the covenant. Fifthly, covenants have ceremonies of celebration. Now, by the way, I developed point four quite a bit more than I did the last time, so quite a bit more, and as well I should have. Ceremonies of celebration. All biblical covenants are sealed with ceremonies and celebrations of enactment and of reinforcement. So in marriage, you have the wedding vows before the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as represented by the people of God sitting in the pews and, and, stand, and solemnizing the marriage. And then you reinforce that covenant every time you have intimate relations in marriage. That's why any of all, I, you know, I actually bought, uh, hopefully a couple of people brought these books back today. I, I brought a book uh, several copies of that will be you'll be seeing on the back table starting today. Did you get that one book and put it on the table that I had you read and give it to who I told you to and so forth? Anyway, I bought a book that uh, by a guy named Jack Hayford called Why Sexual Sins. It's called Fatal Attractions, Why Sexual Sins Are Worse Than Others. And it's simply this. Outside the protection of the covenant of God, it's a very destroying thing. Our culture is full of like, you know, people meet at a bar, you know, at least if you believe the TV, and I, and I think it probably is getting to be this way. I don't know. I don't go to bars. Well, I guess I went to the Dublin pub once, but I uh, uh, didn't meet anybody that wasn't in our church there, but uh, in any case, nor did I want to, but our, our culture, like people like just meet and hop in the sack. Nothing could be more self-destructive than that. Because all of life's greatest things have to be protected by a covenant with God. God's, God's not the problem we are. God wants to bless you. He came to give you abundant life. But he's got this problem where he loves you so much, he's not going to let you be God. You might as well get over it and stop trying to do it your way. You can have it your way at Burger King. Burger King but not with God. Uh, covenant, you know, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. Now, this goes back all the way to Genesis 1. Everybody knows the Dominion Covenant, but when we look at the Dominion Covenant one of the, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we're going to look at Genesis 1, 29 to 30, the next two verses, where God created food for man to make covenant with God and celebrate before him. And that's what we do here. So, uh, Psalm 104, 14 and 15. Boy, I wanted to give myself more time I wanted to preach those verses. But I'll just uh, refer you to them and you think on them. Signs and symbols, biblical covenants have boundaries stipulated by the laws, but also depicted in the covenant signs and symbols, uh, a biblical view of remembrance. These are signs and symbols that seal the covenant. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is is just as important as water baptism because the two halves make one whole baptism. And getting baptized in the Holy Spirit with a personal prayer language, which slaps your... uh, controlling nature that wants, that you know, that doesn't want to submit to anything you can't control, and it can't be, you know, and so forth. The reason it's so important is because it's God's down payment. It's his wedding ring. It's his foretaste of the power of the age to come, breaking into your life now. That's why he wants to fill you with his spirit, because he wants you to when you worship Him to enter fully into the Holy of Holies, to enter the scenes of Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5 and experience His manifest power. And until you do that, you'll yet be a a, a normal person. And God didn't die to make you a normal person. He died to make you a supernormal person that you can only be in Christ sanctions every covenant has promises blessings for those who obey and curses for those who rebel we already touched on that in isaiah 1 see deuteronomy 8 read exodus 19 1 through 6 when just before god gives them the law he tells moses i i am the god who took you out of egypt on eagle's wings and i alone am your god and so forth and uh and then he goes if uh If you uh, hearken unto my word and obey my word, you shall be my special treasure in the earth. You know, one of the problems with the way we do the sinner's prayer and all this is that God takes you seriously. But most people haven't prepared the person who's praying it to take it seriously. But when you begin to ask God to come into your life, he does. But he comes in as his kind of father, not the kind of father you'd like him to be. And therefore, he disciplines you as a son or a daughter so that you can share his holiness and his character and his righteousness because that's his gift to you. And he doesn't come with sanctions of curse, uh, curses and for judgment. He comes so that he might bless you with the fullness of his kingdom in the end. That's his purpose. You know... Any father who's disciplined a son at age four has had the the thought, you know, like, this is going to hurt me more than does you and all that go through. But, you know, you're jealous for their character. So every covenant has conditional aspects and unconditional aspects, and God keeps his unconditional aspects. Lastly, covenants have... um, Uh, principles for succession. So you notice there's four S's at the end, sign, symbol, sanction, succession. You'd you'd do well just to remember those four. Uh, Covenants always focus on the heirs of the covenant. God intends for the covenant to continue from generation to generation, training disciples or children, spiritual children, disciples, to follow, and it's pretty much the same thing, by the way. If you, if you get involved in shepherding and discipling, it's exactly the same thing as raising kids. So, training disciples to follow God and working to pass the blessings of faithfulness onto the future is essential to true covenantal obedience. Here's one thing I, I just want to say to you. Um, if you never sat down with Larry Trumbach and heard his journey or sat down with me and heard my whole journey, we're the only two hair guys around here, so <laughs> do it. Sit down, take Larry out to lunch, buy his lunch. That would be at first. Uh, Larry's a generous guy. He usually buys. But uh, buy his lunch and say, tell me about your journey with God. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what you'll discover. Something that uh, Dave Yon is discovering because he has a little one is God loves your sons and daughters so much that He's going to beat the crap out of you. <laughs> he's going to. There's going to be crosses every day. You're going to have to cry out for grace. Not my will, but Thy will be done. Your God is going to make a godly man out of you for Israel's sake, because you. This, you know, I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie The In Laws, great movie, really funny. But there's this Jewish guy sitting in the chair, and, and Alan Arka is going, I haven't even, my daughter's getting married in two days, and I haven't even met her father yet. And the guy grabs his uh, dental thing and pulls it up, he goes, Call it off. He goes, What? He goes, Call it off. He goes, What do you mean? He says, Call the wedding off. He goes, I can't call the wedding off. We got caters and all this stuff. He goes, He, the son that your daughter's marrying is the acorn. And you're saying you haven't met the oak tree? And you're going to let her marry the acorn? Call it off. Now, this may sound stupid, but you know what? The most important thing when you start looking at who uh, to at court and everything else, look at their parents. Look at their spiritual heritage. Look at the generational things that are in their culture and their, and their uh, you know, in the parents. Now, through Christ, hopefully people have been reborn. And so if they've gone far enough in the Lord, look at their spiritual parents. Oh, I'm always embarrassing Emily with this story, but but I didn't know there was actually a reciprocal side until we were out at, uh, what's that place? We were out at Cheesecake Factory, and uh, um, Emily reminded us that when J- John and her were had their first date and date, and they went out to dinner, and then they arranged it for us to meet up with them at Cheesecake Factory for dessert, and she said, after I got to know you and Catherine, I was sold, right? And, and I was like, wow, no, no wonder this girl is so amazing. She has spiritual discernment, <laughs> uh, if I don't say so myself. And really, I, I liked Emily, but she's soft-spoken. And so her parents came to dinner. And after the dinner, I felt a little embarrassed because I started to cry before they left because I, said, I knew that God had provided a godly woman for my son because of how godly her parents are. Now, that may seem a little old-fashioned, and you know many of us don't have godly parents. That's what the church is for. Come under the godly parents called the elders and other leading people in the church and get your life to be like theirs. That's what Hebrews 13.7 says. If you don't have some people in your church that you can can quote this verse toward, then you're not in a biblical church and you should get out of it. Hebrews 13.7 says, Consider those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. If you can't say, I'd like to be like those people, you need to find a better church where you can say, I'd like to be like those people. Amen. So we'll uh